Today on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, we are featuring a compilation of podcast conversations we have had over the past year or so with Black Americans as they talk about their experiences as minorities in the United States. It is a basic tenet of someone to tell it to that every person is a person of value. We believe that everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, that everyone has a voice and a perspective and wants and needs to be heard and valued for who they are. These excerpts from the conversations we are highlighting today amplify the voices of people who know the feeling of not always being valued, who have felt disregarded, marginalized, disrespected. We want them to be heard. So we share their voices, their stories again, so that they may be heard. As you listen to their stories, we hope you will feel inspired by what they have learned and what they have done to rise above all that has worked against them because of the color of their skin. The content of their character, every one of them is strong, full of passion, sparked by compassion and fueled by empathy for others because they know what it's like to feel life's unfairness, the barriers that have conspired to keep them from living out their true potential. We hope these conversations bring you greater insights, deeper knowledge, a more conscious awareness of what others experience and how it makes them feel when life itself seems to conspire against them as human beings. Thank you for joining us and them. Thank you for listening with open hearts and spirits today. Our guests today are Mary Frances Berry, Jamia Wilson, Sharice Johnson, Anthony Johnson, and Amber Sessoms. Whose voices have you listened to throughout your life that have influenced you to be a teacher, an advocate, and a leader in the hard times and intense work of changing our world for the better? Well, most of the people that I've listened to, aside from the elders in my own family, when I was a child, I remember sitting around at night with the other children as they told stories to each other <laughs> about what you had to do to get ahead and what they had been through and this and that. Those were, uh, I was very impressed by all of that. But the other part is teachers. Teachers were very important. When I was in high school, my favorite teacher was a woman named Minerva Hawkins, who was a history teacher. And one of the things she told me was that you should not be a historian because historians don't make any money. <laughs> and what you should do is major in science. I didn't want to major in science. She said, you can read history. <laughs> Go major in science. Maybe you'll get a job. She was, I would say, my best friend. I changed my major. And I changed it because I was sick of it and I wanted to do something else. I figured I could major in philosophy. It wasn't history, so I wasn't really lying to her. <laughs> but then I loved uh, philosophy, especially uh, logic. And after I finished and decided to go to graduate school in history, I finally told her that I thought I would be able to make a living somehow being a historian because that's what I loved. And for the rest of my life, she remained a voice I listened to. When I was in the um, uh, government and had big fights with uh, President Reagan, 
Ronald Reagan over civil rights. And he ended up, you know, firing me for opposing him. She said, she sent me a note, I remember, she said, remember Mary Frances, when you're in the limelight, you make a good tart. What does that say to you mm. uh, as a black woman to have um, a person like you who is nominated for the second highest position in this land? And when we've had never had a woman in that position, nor, nor a woman of color, so close to the top. Yeah, I mean, I, it's time. I thought a lot about when I called my late, my now late grandmother, lived to be in her late 90s, mid to late 90s. And I remember calling her when Barack Obama became president and I was literally dancing in the streets. I was dancing in Union Square when we heard the news. I ran out and I had a dress. I had participated in a fashion show that was themed around Barack Obama from the store called Goldwater that makes eco-sustainable clothes. And they made me... Um, Obama earrings. So I had Obama earrings on and an Obama dress. And I ran out in my Obama dress and Obama earrings screaming into Union Square to this impromptu dance party. And I remember calling my grandmother as I was a part of that saying, Grandma, oh my God, did you ever think almost 90 years ago that you would see this? And I, I don't know what I expected, but you know, I'm out there wearing Obama clothes and dancing and thinking, I never thought that I would see a black president. And I was still so young. I think I was 28. And my grandma was like, yeah, I thought about how it's about time. It's about time. This should have happened forever ago. And so, yes, it's important, but baby, I'm going to go to bed now because it's about time and grandma's tired. And I remember just thinking like, oh, I was hoping that we were going to have this monumental conversation and she was going to tell me how meaningful this was for her. But she was just like, yeah, baby, it's time. It's time. We needed to have that forever ago. And now we got time to catch up because we, you know, we're so late. We're so late to have this happen. And so um, I, I think that she taught me a lot in that, that she was excited about Barack Obama and was proud to have casted her vote for him. But also it's just like, don't forget, baby, that this is high time, that we've fought a lot for this and this needed to happen forever ago. And why did it take so long? And so that this was like this very sobering moment and like, and let, don't let it take that long again was kind of the message I got from her. And so when I think about this opportunity, I was one of the 200 black women who signed a letter to Joe Biden and saying that we really, really, really want to see a black woman or a woman of color in that role. And I said that as a person who personally was a Warren supporter during the election, but in this case, I, I, I really think it's important, um, specifically because of who carried him over the thresholds um, and made it possible for him to be the nominee. And so I believe that Black women have been the, the backbone of what it's made it possible for the progressive candidates who have become our nominees for so many years. And I want to and I want to see that paid forward, that we're not just um, expected to be the foot soldiers but also um, that we are given the respect and representation that we deserve for our leadership, that reciprocal nurturing. Anthony, we would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your story. 
and some of the pivotal moments that have helped define who you are today. I'll start by just saying, you know, I'm from Buffalo, New York. Um, I currently live in West Virginia. Um, you know, I'm from a rough area in, on the east side of Buffalo, New York. And, you know, 18 years, 18 plus years of military experience, some in the Army, some in the Air Force as an enlisted member and an officer. And I think one of the, my first pivotal moment that comes to mind is in the military. And, you know, it has to do with me being in the military. And before I came an officer in the Army, I was in ROTC at WVU. And I had to pass combat water survival. I didn't graduate undergrad until I was 27. I started school in 2001 as a freshman. I left and went back home to New York to help my mom out. And then I went back to school um, after Hurricane Katrina. I have to pass combat water survival to become an officer in the Army. And I don't know how to swim. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was my senior year of college. I had 18 credits. I was... um, taking care of my younger brother who I took in as a, as his legal guardian. He was going to high school in Morgantown, Morgantown high. I was working a job as a waiter. Uh, I was the battalion commander for WVU ROTC student commander. And, and I ran a mentor program for high school kids and I had to pass combat water survival. So I would get up every morning, you know, early and I would go to the rec center before class and I would teach myself how to swim. Hmm. And, you know, to this day, I would say that's in the top three most difficult things I've ever done is past combat water survival. It, it was easy for a lot of people because they knew how to swim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but for me, to tread water for five minutes was the most tiring, one of the most tiring things I've ever done in my life. To swim continuously for 10 minutes without stopping is very difficult for me. So that was a pivotal moment for me because I knew that in my life, I was going to do whatever it took. I was always willing to do whatever it took to get to where I wanted to go. That stayed with me throughout my life that no matter what, I'm going to do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. I've had my ups and downs and it's ebbed and flow where I've been productive and not so productive, but I've always been willing to do whatever it takes. The other pivotal moment that comes to mind is when I had my first child and, you know, when I became a father, that was the beginning of me being dedicated to my personal growth and development. Like before I was just kind of floating through life. I kind of didn't care about relationships or, you know, certain things. And necessarily I wasn't dedicated to my personal growth and development. But when I had children, that was the beginning of that journey. Um, So those two moments, I would say, very pivotal for me in my life. Sharice, a few weeks ago, Michael and I had the privilege of supporting you when you had received the Woman of the Year Award. You have such a compelling life story. Today, would you tell us a little bit about it? My compelling life story, (laughs) yes, my life has definitely had its ups and downs, mostly downs when I was younger, being that I could not control the environment in which I lived. My memories take me far back to living with my mother, stepfather, twin sister, and two younger sisters. During these years, my mom worked as a nurse. My stepfather worked odd jobs until finally he became completely unemployed. At this time, I recall experiencing a shift in a household with my stepfather being depressed and dependent on my mother to maintain the household finances. 
This is when my stepfather became a drug user. And later he introduced those drugs to my mother. I can remember playing around in the house and finding drug paraphernalia hidden around the house with my sisters. My, my sisters and I could even tell when they had been using because it left a stench in the air. We, you know, kids, they notice everything. They, they know what's going on. And eventually those drugs became overbearing and my mother could no longer manage to keep me and my sisters. One day it seemed like everything was fine. And then the next day, my twin sister and I were being dropped off at my grandmother's home. As my mother dropped us off, she told us we would be living with our father, a man who we've never met before. At eight years old, we were passed on to someone we considered to be a stranger. Could you imagine that? Living with the father was another life-changing experience. He had his own, his own family, his fiance, his teenage stepson. And at first, it seemed like we were happy. We're a happy big family. My father tried to do the right thing by purchasing a home for us, big enough for all of us to fit together comfortably. He worked a lot, which meant that me and my sister were home with his fiance all the time. And when my father wasn't around, she wasn't too nice to us. I believe she harbored some negative feelings about us invading her family and her life. And when my father was around, it was only briefly. He spent a lot of time out of the house. He was either working or he was out drinking. At the age of 14, things changed drastically. Things got really intense in the household while my father was at work one evening. My soon-to-be stepmother hit me and bruised my face really bad. So my twin sister and I ran away. We ended up moving with our aunt for a few months. We went through the court process and testified against my stepmother. My father was given the option to choose to live with his kids or his other family. Thankfully, he chose his kids. Sis my sister and I didn't know it, but that would only be temporary. At the age of 15, my father decided he, was, he wasn't coming back home. He left us to be with his fiance and his stepson. Just imagine two teenagers coming home from a typical day of school to padlocks on the house doors. We didn't know it, but my father stopped paying the rent. My sister and I, we lost everything we owned. When I look back and think about it, I truly don't know how we kept living after that devastation. But somehow we went into survival mode. My sister went to live with her boyfriend and his family, and I did the same. We both worked two jobs. My sister had three jobs at one point. I learned the meaning of survival mode from her. At 16 years old, she was a straight A student working multiple jobs and had an apartment with her boyfriend. 16 years old. We finished high school with honors and without too many people knowing the obstacles we faced, we made it to graduation. People didn't even notice that me and my twin didn't live together. To this day, I give thanks to the family that took me in when I had nowhere to go. Internally, I knew I couldn't live with them forever, but I was determined not to be dependent on anyone anymore. This feeling of determination lit a fire under me. I decided that I wanted to go to college, and I had no support from my mother or my father. 
So with that, I had to request a few reference letters from different adults that could speak to my character so that I could get approved for small state grants to help me pay for college. College was very hard to do alone without support, but I did it. And I graduated from Delaware State University with a 3.0. Fresh out of college, I worked two jobs until I came across the Milton Hershey School. And I've worked there since 2006. Just listening to that, Michael and I are looking at each other and just, gosh, all of the human emotions is wrapped up in in that. Um, And for those who are listening, I mean, that was not edited. That was Sharice just telling her story. And you obviously have overcome so much in your life. And um, yeah, we're just humbled to have you on the program again. And and thank you for, for sharing that. What's that like to be able to, to say that openly? It's it's definitely hard. It's, it's funny because um, a few years ago, I definitely came across a time where I thought to myself that there will come a point in time that I would actually share my journey. And um, with so many great things happening in my life today, um, I had that conversation with my mother and she gave me her blessing to share my story. And and she did it without me asking. And she just said, you know, I know, you know, it's going to come up and, and I'm OK if you want to share it. And And I was very surprised. I was very touched and very happy that she supported me with sharing my my journey with other people because I feel as though um, I'm here for a reason. I'm, I truly have a purpose in life to to share my story and to inspire other people. So one of your accomplishments that would need to be acknowledged here today is your dissertation. And we applaud you. And it's focused on the utility of social media as an informal educational tool for black female identity development, critical consciousness raising, community building, and social action. Could you tell us a little bit about your dissertation and some of your biggest breakthroughs and your gleanings? Yeah, I think I kind of eventually got to the work. One, I've um, when I talk about natural hair, um, I cut all. I shaved, actually shaved my head in 2000 when I was in college. Um, so that was very freeing for me. But it was because I met my mentor who just had the one-year anniversary of her death on the 29th. My mentor, uh, Dr. Rita Smith Waddell, was my first black teacher period and all of you know my education throughout the year so I get to college and I meet this powerhouse of a woman who has natural hair and she's just really starting to help me unpack all the internalized oppression I've had about being black and being a woman growing up in a predominantly white area and for me the cutting of my hair was very cathartic it was just this whole me of a reawakening for me a rebirth of me um, coming into my own and accepting who I am and loving who I am um, because before that I, I didn't love being black I actually hated it mm-hmm. so it was really freeing for me and so I started toying around with this idea of like I wonder if other women feel this way and like you know because I see now you know this whole everyone's doing this natural hair thing but are they doing it because of the reason why I did it or is it, has it become a trend now and then social media got into there because I was seeing these bloggers making millions of dollars 
off of these you know natural hair care products and and blogging about it so i started thinking about how do we form communities in cyberspace do we actually form communities or are we wearing a mask you know who do we like our engagement online is it really authentically who we are so i played around with some of that idea of looking at um you know 10 different women uh, some of them being in South Africa, in the UK, and talking about like how do you present yourself online and how do you really who you are authentically outside of the cyberspace. And all but two women were really authentically who they were. And I didn't necessarily ask them that question. So I interviewed them. Most of them were, were on, you know, through Skype or Zoom or um, some of them had to be over the phone. But I did actually have access to their online dialogues where they would engage with other blogging platforms. And so then I could see where they really authentically, who they presented to me, were they authentic in the other spaces. And only two women were actually pretty much like incongruent with how they were. So I remember the one lady, she was actually smoking on um, the video chat and saying like, oh, my body is my temple, and, like, which I thought was really funny. Yeah. She's talking about my body is my temple and like, she's smoking a cigarette. So I was like, oh, this will be interesting. So I, then I went and looked at her work because she's talking about I'm a lover and I, I don't get into, you know, beef with anyone online. And then I'm reading her stuff and it is all like really volatile, like really nasty comments. And what I found is like people create these safe spaces online. We all need to have our safe spaces. But when you're a person of a marginalized group, it's even more important to create a safe space. So so for these black women, this online space was their safe haven to kind of talk and unpack what it meant for them to be black women. So when you have outsiders that come in, so say it was a, a white woman, and it might have been a white woman that adopted a black child or that has a biracial child and was just trying to learn about here, they would attack them being like, you don't deserve to be in this space, find a different space for you, or you don't understand my struggle. So again, it's that feeling of being safety. I understand where you're coming from. You can't possibly understand why you're entering my space. It's no longer safe for me, which I one of the biggest things I found, but also how we as people, and I was saying that as, as black women and marginalized groups, how we adopt this stereotype or these tropes that society puts on us. So we will treat certain people a certain way, even like from like um, a physical standpoint. So people that were bi that appeared to be biracial, we would say that they didn't understand the black women's struggle because they weren't fully black. Or you're not black because you have a nose like this or you have hair like this. So we make these arbitrary markers of otherness and how we will shame ourselves in this space was the biggest thing I found. Like we will shame ourselves and we adopt this oppressive language for what? And we believe it. 100% we believe it to be true. Yo, you have nappy hair. I found that true in my family too. So this oppressive language that we adopt from the media, from society is just running rampant among our culture and how do we break out of that how do we free ourselves from that this is a time that is rich and ripe for rebuilding and rebuilding in a new way mm. and not in the old ways that we can't go back to the way it was, but we realize it, it can't and it won't. And, but that's not, that's not bad. That what, what can be, can be so much better. And that's, that's our hope. That's absolutely our prayer. That that's yes. what we can do with this. Yeah. Um, we recently, read an article about the uh, Reverend James Lawson, who uh, had worked with Martin Luther King to train young civil rights peacemakers to fight racism with love and respect. Mm -hmm. 
And um, uh, Reverend Lawson is now 91 years of age. So he's able to look back on nearly a century of, of, of experience and, and experience, you know, and, and life. And he said um, that what now, what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter, that, that so many people are calling it the, the wrong word. First of all, they're calling it a protest. And he said that, that that's focusing on the wrong thing, that, mm. that protest, he said, is such a bad term because all these marches and walks are calling the United States to a new way of life. Mm. You know, they're calling uh, for the dismantling of the old forms of racist violence that we've taken for granted and replacing them with new forms of kinship mm. that will allow us to be a far stronger nation and a better people. It's really important if anytime you're showing up for any demonstration or calling to action, framing it from a place of what are we for is always stronger and always more transformative than um, focusing on what is broken. And it's not to say that we're not gonna name what is broken and what needs to be fixed, because it's really important to know what's broken in order to build something new or to change it. But sometimes we get mired in what is broken to the point where we aren't able to see past it to envision something new, something better, something transcendent. And so for me, I often like to talk about in terms of what, what I'm for, what is the vision, what is, the whole versus the none. Um, and I think that that is so much of what comes out of what, what these Black Lives Matter demonstrations have meant to me. You know, when I saw the demonstrations um, in my neighborhood, just organically seeing the ones outside one day sitting here, you know, at my desk and then hearing Black Lives Matter outside my window and looking at it and seeing mostly white neighbors in my neighborhood with signs saying Black Lives Matter, that was important to me. That was a what are we for moment. That was a, wow, these are human beings who are in the middle of COVID-19 pandemic, standing up for justice, standing up for love. Um, and, you know, for me, I think the last time I'd actually like had something rouse me to my feet that I heard sort of a noise outside and was called to the window, was during Good Friday when we would have the Catholic processions in my neighborhood march with the crosses and they would chant and sing. And so it was almost kind of like a religious experience to see that, to say, you know, oh, this is the last time that, you know, something has brought me to my feet to want to be a part of it, to be it, to see it, to say, we're all in this together. We're not going to rest until all of us are cared for, supported and get what we need. And, and that's what I love about a good protest. And that's why I was crying because I, you know, was because I get so much energy from seeing so many people who are saying, we wanted to do things differently. We can do things differently. There's a lot that we don't have, but what we have is each other. There are certain moments for all of us in our lives when we will always remember where we were when certain events occurred. And for both of us, we will always remember what transpired the day of Derek Chauvin's uh, verdict. And Michael, I know, has a story that we thought would be very fitting as we um, approach this significant day. It was late afternoon here in, in Pennsylvania and I was at home working and my son Matthew was at home too. Matthew has disabilities and he has a caregiver who helps us so that my wife and I can work. When the verdict came on, 
I had asked uh, Matthew's caregiver who was watching television anxiously to see the verdict if she would let me know so that I could stop my work and watch the TV with her uh, when the verdict was given. Uh, Matthew's caregiver is African-American and she was very interested in what would happen. She was sitting on a chair and as the, the judge asked the, the jury for the, each of the three counts of murder that were, they were considering after each one when they said guilty, her hand, Matthew's caregiver's hand flew up to her mouth and she just sat there and didn't say anything. After the first verdict, same thing after the second verdict, and the same after the third, her hand went up to her mouth. And when it was over, she just sat there silently, not moving. And finally, after a few moments, she said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I never thought this would happen. I can't tell you how powerful that was to be in the presence of a black person who expected that once again someone would be exonerated um, in a situation like this when it was uh, clear that excessive force had been used and someone's life was lost. So uh, just to experience that was, like you said, very powerful and very moving and um, kind of humbling to see her reaction, to witness it with her. Yes, yeah, so not only will you remember exactly where you were, you'll always remember her reactions. Absolutely. No, I'll never forget it. Special thanks today to our guests. Mary Frances Berry, Jamia Wilson, Sharice Johnson, Amber Sessoms, and Anthony Johnson. So until we listen again. <laughs>